Good morning, everyone. This is the Political Imagination interview. My name is Harry Rogers, and today I will be talking with Left Unity Wales Coordinating Committee member Craig Lewis about the governance section in the recently released Left Unity Manifesto and how it links to the Wales independence movement and the rest of the Left Unity Wales Manifesto. So welcome, Craig. Hi, Harry. Thanks for having me. I think I'd better start off by just pointing out that uh, although I work with Left Unity in Wales, I actually live in Scotland now, having lived in Wales for 25 years and been active in the trade union movement there, uh, retired up here. And I'm a member of uh, Yes Southside in Glasgow uh, and have been involved in the independence uh, campaign since uh, before the last referendum as well. Oh, well, thank, th thanks very much, Craig. That's really useful to know that. That's a really good bit of background information. So we'll, we'll crack straight into it then. The first question I'd like to put to you is, why should Left Unity support independence for Wales? Well, I think as socialists, we support the rights of the people of Wales to determine their own future, obviously. But of course, self-determination doesn't necessarily mean that socialists would automatically support independence. But in Wales and in Scotland, we think there are compelling reasons to do so. Of course, we're not nationalists. I think it's not really very helpful to think of either progressive or reactionary nationalism, as you hear some on the left talk about. In a sense, all nationalisms have a progressive and a reactionary content. As the Scottish Marxist Tom Nairn argued in the 1960s, nationalist movements are Janus-faced. They have both a progressive and reactionary aspect. By their nature, they try to blur and class differences, obviously. And the question for us, I think, is whether independence for Wales or for Scotland will, and the consequent breakup of the union state, will represent an advance for working class people. And I think it can. There have been 22 polls which show that independence for Scotland is now supported by a majority. And there's obviously growing support for independence in Wales. In both cases, I think a significant section of that support is radical, it's young, it's increasingly working class. The new Now Scotland group, which has been formed up in Scotland, which is similar to Yes Cymru, but now got 2000 members, many of whom are young, radical, and it certainly has strong links within working class communities. And it's got strong links too with the organised labour movement. On many of the demonstrations that uh, its forerunner organisation organised, there were union banners supporting independence, which is very, very important. I think it shows a, a shift in the organised labour movement in Scotland. I think it's probably not too strong to argue that the largely democratic independence movements in Scotland and in Wales along perhaps with the increasing support in Northern Ireland for a border poll, represent one of the main challenges to the reactionary and exceptionalist nationalism that drives the Johnson hard right Tory regime at the moment. Certainly the Tories themselves seem to be increasingly worried about these nationalist movements, about these independence movements, hence the new union unit which they've set up in Downing Street and the recently announced intention to target spending directly at local authorities in the devolved nations and bypass Holyrood and the Senate. Now, I think there are many factors that are driving the independence movement, of course, but certainly it's not just a matter of personal identity, ethnicity, 
you know, or even dislike of English people, which is uh, how the media sometimes likes to, or nearly always, tries to portray it. It's certainly been driven by the economic devastation brought on by, brought on working class communities by austerity during the last decade and more. But equally importantly, I think, in Scotland and, and in Wales too, there's a dawning realisation amongst ordinary people that their voice just cannot be heard within the UK political system. For example, in Scotland, there's much talk of the democratic deficit that results in Scotland not getting the governments that it votes for. You know, it was uh, 1957, I think, the last time that uh, there was a Tory majority in a general election campaign in Scotland. And now two thirds of the time since then, Scotland has been ruled by conservative governments. So this is one aspect of that democratic deficit. The other is more obvious. It's the way in which the, the devolved nations have policies imposed on them from Westminster, which quite clearly they haven't voted for. The most obvious one recently being Scotland taken out of the, uh, the European Union. So the UK political establishment and the media, of course, likes to talk about a Scottish problem or a Welsh problem in this regard. But independence movements are, are always portrayed as being secessionist. Support has always been whipped up by national, nationalist populism or devious charismatic figures like Nicola Sturgeon for their own political motives. Now, I think that reinforces the idea that ordinary working class people can never hope to take a direct part in the political process themselves. This is something which stems from the nature of the democratic processes that are inherent in the British states. Okay, well, that's, that's really interesting. I think that co covers a, a lot of points there about, about the nature of the British state. So I'd like to move on now and, and talk about the Left Unity Manifesto. In the manifesto, it says that we don't defend the current structure of the British state as being democratic or the only way to govern. Can you elaborate a bit more on that and why you think it's important? Yeah, it, it it's, um, goes to the heart of what I've just said about the problem lying within the British state itself. It, the fact is that the problem is neither a Scottish problem nor a Welsh problem. It's not even an English problem for that matter. The democratic deficit that effectively renders ordinary working class people powerless and voiceless in the British state is a direct consequence of the dysfunctional, centralised, semi-feudal almost political structures of the British state. You know, I, I would say that this is at the root of the powerlessness that's also felt in many English working class communities as well. If being effectively weaponized by a section of the ruling class to deliver Brexit, and you know, despite its, its obvious negative economic consequences for working class people. I'm not trying to make a point here about some sort of obscure constitutional theory. I think structures such as the unelected House of Lords, the first past the post electoral system, the arcane crown powers that, uh, and processes of parliamentary sovereignty, these all reduce ordinary people to passive agents in the political process. And they also provide immensely powerful tools for the uh, ruling elites in which they can through which they can protect their own class interests and undermine the civil and workplace rights of citizens. This political settlement seems normal to us, even to many on the left, I think, because effectively it's existed for about 300 years with only a few minor alterations. You know, there's been some extension of the franchise 
and there's been the, the, the recent establishment of the devolved parliaments. But other than that, I would imagine folk in Queen Anne's time could probably recognise the political structures of the British state. But let's just consider some examples of how those have had impact on the lives of ordinary working class people. Recently, under Johnson's uh, government, ministers were able to restrict the parliamentary scrutiny of the whole Brexit process. And that's having a direct impact, even now, on jobs in Wales. I used to live on Inismorn uh, when I lived in, in, in Wales. And I know how important the Port of Holyhead is to the local economy. There was an article in The Guardian the other day which suggests that the fall in traffic through the port has led to the, the, the threats, is now threatening rather, the, something like 50% of jobs in that area. Now, that would be a massive blow to that economy. I know, how, I know the extent to which that local economy, I know from my direct experience extent that that, that, that local economy depends on the, on the traffic through the port. But that could have been identified, but it wasn't. It wasn't because the government used powers to restrict the scrutiny of that trade deal that Johnson agreed. Other aspects as well, the Single Market Act, which we've all heard about, which was passed despite majorities in both the Senate and in Holyrood, with a simple majority of mainly English Tories at Westminster, removes at a stroke some of the key reserved powers of the devolved governments. And it directly does direct threats, direct implications for workplace rights, for product standards and for environmental standards as well in the, in, the, in the devolved parliament. The use of the crown powers by ministers to restrict parliamentary scrutiny of trade deals. It's been made clear there'll be very little, very limited parliamentary scrutiny of trade deals. This can be done by the use of those crown powers. It's got implications, direct implications for the delivery of our public services, not just in the devolved nations, but right across the UK. You know, it's got direct implications for privatisation, outsourcing, the opening up of public services to competition as a result of those trade deals. So finally, we should remember that the whole devolved nature of government can be removed at a stroke by decisions a majority decision of the Westminster government dominated by a Tory majority. So I'll just mention two more. Is that OK? And then, and then I'll move on. All right. Yeah, yeah, we'll go to the next question after that. OK. We mustn't forget that the whole devolution settlement can be overturned by a simple majority vote at Westminster, regardless of the expressed wishes in Scotland and Wales, uh, where Tory party representation is only a minority. For example, in Scotland, it's at 20% at the moment. Now, it's for reasons like this that working people feel powerless. Independence alone, I think, will not address the problem of ruling class power built into the Westminster system. But it would be a step forward if an independent Wales were to adopt a republican form of government based on popular sovereignty with the fullest possible democratic involvement of all citizens. Now, that's why our constitutional proposals are so important, I think. Uh, campaigning around radical economic, ecological and social demands and rebuilding the confidence in collective power of grassroots activity are vital. They're integral to our manifesto agenda, which other people have been talking about. But unless we directly challenge the atrophied democracy embodied in the UK system of government, then the sense of powerlessness and absence of a democratic voice will continuously return to undermine working class solidarity and breed hopelessness. In a sense, then, 
our eco-socialist agenda depends fundamentally on helping to empower working class people to shape their own political future. That's why we argue that a democratic social republic in Wales would be a massive step forward. Now, to achieve that, of course, means a break from Westminster rule. That means Wales becoming an independent and self-governing state. Well, that's, that's very, very interesting. Uh, I, I mean, I noticed that the manifesto calls for Wales to become a democratic social republic based on popular sovereignty. So what does that mean in practice for working class people? And aren't we being a bit timid here? Surely we are socialists and internationalists. Uh, we want to see society organised globally as fully socialist republics. Yeah, Harry, I think that's absolutely right. We are socialists and we are aiming at a fully socialist republic. In fact, we'd like to see, I think, the, uh, we'd like to see the social republics organised across Europe and across the world. It's about how we get there, though. The whole of our manifesto is built around this notion of transitional demands, isn't it? Where we start with where people are, what's possible at the moment, and then we prefigure the future, if you like, in our present demand. And that's what I think the social republic is about. If I can just explain. Firstly, we're very clear, of course, that we would oppose simply re reproducing key features of that Westminster system that I've just been talking about in Edinburgh or in Cardiff. Maintaining the Queen as the head of state, for example, retaining Stirling and the Bank of England, along with membership of NATO, as uh, the Scottish National Party leadership advocate in Scotland, would not be a major democratic advance for working people, in my view. Our vision for a democratic social republic based on popular sovereignty, we have outlined, as you say, in the, in the government section of our manifesto. I do think, though, it would be helpful if I develop this a little bit further here, because it isn't that clear. You're absolutely right about that. Let's take what it would actually mean. I think, for instance, it would mean a number of things which would have uh, direct uh, relevance to the lives of ordinary working class people. It would mean that obvious democratic changes would take place. The abolition of the monarchy, for example. A written constitution to enshrine, enshrine the rights of citizens would be uh, uh, an essential part of it. People of Wales would no longer be subjects of the crown. They'd become fully autonomous citizens, able to determine their own future through political structures that they have determined themselves. In the first place, that could be done through a constituent assembly, as was discussed in Scotland in 2014. It would be elected by a popular vote and it would allow citizens to determine their own future. There would be a basic law which could be amended in future by popular votes as well. The constitution and the basic law of an independent sovereign Wales would, of course, be determined only after the widest possible discussions within civic society involving trade unions, professional bodies, religious communities and so forth. You know, this, these would be essential parts of how you build that social republic. The most democratic form of proportional representation would also be enshrined in the constitution and that would lead to better representation for all groups in society. And there'd obviously be provision as we advocate in the manifesto for the recall of representatives to the parliament to the senate and so on there would be guarantees too of open and transparent parliamentary and executive structures and procedures and debates the crucial thing about all this is that it would be the people of wales that determine all of that that's what you know the the republican form of government would allow 
further, of course, it would mean, and again, we touch on this, and I think Steve touched on it in his uh, podcast as well, it would mean extending and deepening democracy to the fullest extent possible so as to allow grassroots involvement in decision-taking uh, within communities. It would include also the right to recall local political representatives when necessary. Grassroots democracy would also be extended not just to local communities and to councils, council areas. It would be extended also to workplace organisation and government. A very, very important aspect of grassroots Republican democracy, I think. And it would also uh, extend to the fullest possible democratic oversight of public services and public service provision. So those are some of the things that we mean by uh, a social republic. And just to go back to the point that you made at the beginning, that idea of a social republic doesn't deliver socialism. We know that, you know, nor does our eco-socialist agenda immediately deliver socialism. What it does is it massively empowers working class people to shape their own future through their own institutions, if you like. That's basically uh, what we mean by a social uh, a social republic. Well, that's a very full answer again, Craig. Thank you very much. Um, I'm very exercised these days about uh, the direction that the Labour Party seems to be going in. And um, yeah. I have a, 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 a one question on that. Increasingly, the Labour Party is calling for a federal restructuring of the UK. Is this not a worthwhile alternative to independence, one which does not risk the fragmentation of the left? Yeah, I, I think uh, you're, you're right that uh, the Labour Party is proposing a kind of federalism. Certainly Starmer has been more than hinting at that. I believe there was actually a meeting in Wales as well recently, which looked at the prospects of federalism as an alternative to independence. The problem is that the kind of federalism that Starmer and the Labour Party are proposing, and actually I think have been, uh, is being talked about by some uh, sections of the Tory party, perhaps the more enlightened sections of the Tory party, is designed to preserve the union and most of the centralised structures of the British state that we've been talking about, discussing. In a sense, the proposals themselves, I suppose, reflect worries within the UK political and business establishments about the growing strength, I suppose, of the democratic independence movements in Scotland and Wales and tensions within the political establishment over how to deal with it. And now in, here as left unity, we've got to be very clear, I think. We are internationalists. Uh, we need to be careful that we don't end up tail-ending mainstream nationalism. We don't support independence just because we think Wales will be better off as a niche economy within global capitalism, with its own top-down Westminster-style governing structure. The whole point of arguing for a democratic social republic, which we've just been talking about, is because it is, in a sense, a transitional demand that helps advance the interests of working class people by unpicking the political power structures of the ruling class. We're not arguing for separation as an end in itself, but as a way of furthering working class interests. Independence is essential so that Wales can determine its own political uh, system based on grassroots sovereignty and, an, and end the democratic deficit inherent in the current Westminster-dominated union. But this doesn't preclude us entering into a federal arrangement with other states. We're internationalists, either in the sense of the, the UK or indeed in Europe. 
as socialists in Wales, we would presumably argue for federal arrangements if we thought it advanced the international struggle against global capital. But this would be for the democratic decision of the people of Wales. That's what we're saying. It would not be imposed from above by Westminster, by a central Westminster state. And I think that's what Starmer and the Labour Party are talking about. They're talking about a way of defending the status quo by possibly conceding slightly more devolution. It's very similar to the vow that Gordon Brown orchestrated in 2014 in Scotland, which actually was done simply to because the establishment were panicking because there was one poll very close to the end of the referendum campaign that showed majority support for independence. That's what prompted the federalism. After the no vote was delivered, we heard no more about it virtually. There was the Smith Commission which was set up, which marginally improved the, the tax raising powers of the Scottish government. But the main outcome of that uh, proposed federalism that, that Brown orchestrated was English votes for English laws. The day after the referendum was defeated, the no campaign won. Uh, David Cameron came out in public and said that it was now time to restrict the rights of the Scottish MPs to vote on English matters. And that's what we got. We didn't get any enhanced democracy. It was simply a way to head off the independence campaign. I think that's what this is. Right? If as ordinary you know, democratic citizens in Wales, as ordinary working people, we decide for ourselves that it's worth entering uh, federal arrangements with other democratic states, then of course we should do that. But not something which is simply imposed from the system, uh, which is already restricting the involvement, the ability of working people to involve themselves in shaping their own futures. Well, thank you very much, Craig. That was, uh, once again, a very full answer. It's been a very, very useful discussion uh, on, yeah. on the constitutional future of Wales and left unity's part in determining the direction that the, the, the future of Wales goes in. And hopefully people out there who are listening to this will want to engage with Left Unity and um, the the other organisations that are uh, progressively seeking independence and and change within Wales. So we'll end there. Thanks very much, Craig. It's been very good to talk with you. Thanks very much, Harry. And I uh, agree absolutely with you. Let's hope we can encourage people to work with us to, to fight for independence in Wales and to fight for an eco-socialist future for the people of Wales. OK, I'll see you soon, comrade. And thank you so much for giving your time up for this episode. Well, comrades, we'll be back soon enough, I'm sure, with more episodes that concentrate on investigating more fully the new Left Unity for Wales manifesto. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.